1971, an album was released that has widely become known as one of the great albums of all time. The album is so good, it gives me goosebumps just going back and listening to it. The Who released Who's Next, their fifth studio album. Not quite sure if our panellists can recall or familiar with it. Vittoria, I don't know if you know this album, but it's just such a good album. No, I'm more of the era of the Limp Biscuit version of yeah. um, Behind Blue Eyes. Yeah. How, how, <laughs> how disappointing to hear that, uh, Victoria. Sawin, are you the Limp Biscuit era or are you the Who era? Uh, I guess I'm a hybrid Wallace, a hybrid. But you know, I, I was I, I was listening to that and I was thinking uh. that's familiar somewhere and I can't place it. And I was thinking Wallace will identify what the song yeah. is. Who who's singing? That's right. Thanks, Wallace. It comes into play now. Yeah. So for yeah. those uh, massive Limp Biscuit fans who are about to uh, text me uh, before Limp Biscuit. Before before it was a Limp Biscuit song, it was actually a Who song. But uh, fair play, Victoria. The Limp Biscuit song, I hear the version is not too bad. It's not too bad at yeah. all, actually. I went to a went to a netball quiz um, fundraiser last night, and there was mm-hmm. a Boomers music mm-hmm. um, segment, and you would have just aced it, Wallace. You I should have been have. there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, going back to my old school roots. Anyway, that is The Who on this day in 1971, one of the great albums of all time, perhaps on the top. I think I think the top five, actually. Who's next? There you have it. Do, wow. you, agree, do, you, do you agree with me? Uh, we have oh, – no, I've just got to – we have had so much response. I've just got to read out a couple of responses on this. Uh, good afternoon. Exemption from GST was applied in South Africa over 40 years ago. There seemed to be no problems. It was taken off all basic foods, um, uh, bread, flour, fruit, dairy, veggies, meat, fish. Enjoying the show, says Angela. No to GST removal. The hidden admin costs will be high. As one person stated, four bucks reduction is not a lot in saving. Less than a two-litre bottle of milk costs. Uh, Yes, I support it. It is not a cynical vote grab, but a simple response to the dire straits of many families and should have been done earlier. Tax cuts don't help the needy or beneficiaries. No, it complicates a simple system and benefits the rich much more than the poor, says Rosalind. So I'll share those poll results with you in about oh, five, ten minutes' time. To this, uh, we have one of the highest rates of asthma in the developed world. And asthma attacks, they are increasing too. The chances of someone having an asthma attack are higher now than it was 10 years ago. But the percentage of people with asthma in the country has stayed stable. Every year, asthma costs Aotearoa around a billion dollars because of hospital care and medication. With us is Dr. Amy Chan, Senior Clinical Research Fellow in the School of Pharmacy, uh, Medical of, Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences uh, at Auckland University. Dr. Jan Kiora. Good to be with you. Yes, so I read your interesting uh, opinion piece on Newsroom about this. Firstly, what are the main reasons that people do develop asthma? We don't know. I think it's one of those things where um, it can come down to things like genetics. Um, We're not really sure why people end up developing asthma. 
There are a couple of theories um, besides genetics as well as early exposure in childhood, for example, to allergens. Um, and there is also a working hypothesis, for example, whether exposure to certain medications such as paracetamol um, may also lead to the development of asthma. But because asthma is one of those conditions where it's an allergic response. So basically your body is just reacting too strongly to normal allergens around you. We haven't quite worked out what the mechanism is why some people develop asthma but others don't. Mm. What I do know, uh, Dr Chan, is that it is so extraordinarily prevalent in New Zealand society, isn't it? Every person listening to this will know someone, be it a whānau member, be it a relation, be it a friend or colleague, who does have asthma. Absolutely, and I think this is something that uh, we have seen for many decades that New Zealand is still on the top leading countries in terms of our asthma rates. And what we didn't know was how bad we were in terms of our asthma attack rates which is what our recent research has found, that actually asthma attack rates are also on the increase in the last decade. So definitely very concerning for New Zealand. Yes, indeed. Victoria, let's bring you in. Yeah, I um, my now adult son suffered very badly from asthma when he was under the age of 10, including, you know, middle-of-the-night ambulances and nebulizers and long stints in hospital. So I'm very familiar um, with this, with no real understanding of why he developed it. Dr. Chan, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, is there a correlation with our damp homes? Because we were very young parents, lived in a damp Wellington rental at the time. I always wonder whether it was our damp home that, that could have impacted him and why he had such severe asthma. Absolutely. I think there was a recent study that was done around in our Rotorua region, one of the first New Zealand studies, that actually showed a direct correlation between the quality of our housing and substandard housing and the risk of having asthma attacks and being hospitalized with asthma. And the reason why damp homes is that um, mold, um, which is a very common allergen and trigger for asthma attacks, tends to grow and flourish in dark, damp housing. Uh, and without um, the air quality, if it's too humid um, or too damp, that can often trigger an asthma attack. So certainly, Victoria, that could be a, definitely a correlation. Yes, that one. It's, it connects to that. Um, I you know, shouldn't be speaking my own experience, but, but it is relevant in this case, I suppose. I had no symptoms of asthma right through my life. Um, and then about 12 years ago, we bought a do-up house in Auckland. And then in the process of doing it up, I was working from home in one of the rooms and the roof was very leaky. And it was a damp room, and I developed asthma really bad. I, I used to be on, you know, on the Radio New Zealand's panel, and I'd be trying to stifle coughs right through the program, you know. And I'd never had it before, and I, I really yes. only could put it down to that. And so, what you're saying there, it rings true with me, and I'm sure for thousands of others listening to. Which is why it's definitely one of those things that healthy homes are so important. And I know Asthma New Zealand has run a whole program around the importance of having healthy homes in New Zealand because it's just so important for keeping um, our whanau out of hospital with asthma. A couple of questions here. Um, someone says, is pine pollen a factor in asthma? Certainly more than around then 40 years ago, says someone. 
Yeah, we don't know. One of the key mm. concerns that I wanted to raise is New Zealand doesn't have an active pollen monitoring system, which right. is concerning considering that pollen is a very common trigger for asthma and many other allergic conditions like hay fever. So the last time we had any active pollen monitoring in place was in 1988. Um, and so we very recently have just installed New Zealand's first pollen monitor since 1988 on top of the roof of Auckland Museum to find out exactly are there changes happening in the types of pollen and amount of pollen that we're seeing. And it's concerning because our Aussie cousins, they have, I think, you know, half a dozen of um, pollen monitors all around the country and we don't have anything oh, wow. at all. Very interesting. So we we have no airborne pollen monitoring program, whereas other countries do? Absolutely. We have nothing at all, which is something I was I only found out um, in the last two years in my research program because I really wanted to understand how climate change in Poland may be related to these asthma attacks that we're seeing on the increase. And that was when I found out that we actually had no Poland data at all and that the Met Service data that we're seeing is based on a historical forecast. Um, and now with climate change, um, that can definitely be out of date or may not be as relevant. Well, that might be something to uh, bring up uh, maybe even uh, this election year, uh, whether or not that uh, we should have, considering our <laughs> rate of asthma uh, just so high, whether or not we actually do need a national uh, pollen monitoring program. be interesting to see if that uh, gets picked up. Uh, just finally, before we go, uh, Amy, um, does diet and nutrition have a bearing on asthma? Recently, there's been very interesting data that has um, come out of Newcastle University that shows that diet indeed may have a, a direct effect on asthma attacks. Because what they found was when um, people ate a high-fat diet, um, they had higher airway inflammation in their lungs within four hours after eating a high-fat diet compared to people who had a low-fat diet. So potentially people's asthma control may be really immediately affected by the food that they eat, um, which is again a new thing right. that we're trying to investigate to see that relationship. Yeah, definitely worth thinking about, isn't it? And talking about uh, considering our asthma rates for now. Dr. Jan Kiora, good to have you here. That's uh, Amy, Amy Chan, uh, a senior clinical research fellow at uh, Auckland University on that interesting uh, piece of uh, research there. Now, so to our poll, quarter to five on the panel, Salwyn Manning and Victoria McLennan. I asked you at the start of the show, do you support GST off fruit and vegetables? Yes or no? Why or why not? Uh, and the results have just come through. Uh, 69% of you said no to removing GST from fruit and vegetables. 31% of you voted yes. So that panel poll, again, snap poll, 69% voted no to removing GST from fruit and veggies. The panel, RNZ National. Now, nutritionists at large are wrapped with the decision to add folic acid to the non-organic wheat flour used in most New Zealand-made breads. The move was announced in 2021. It comes into effect from today. With us is Dr. Catherine Bradbury, Senior Research Fellow at the University of Auckland's Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. Dr. Bradbury, welcome to the panel. Kia ora, thanks for having me. So, fairly big day today. Uh, it comes into effect today, uh, but uh, for Australia, 
they did it, what, 14 years ago? Yeah, they did. And we were going to do it at the same time as Australia. Oh, Our were we? food standards code. Yeah, we have a joint food standards code with Australia. So usually we do uh, things together in terms of our food standards. Um, but we pulled out at the last minute and they went ahead. Now, there are some who do remain unconvinced, and that is, uh, I think uh, we had, uh, or RNZ uh, referred to uh, in the news too, baking New Zealand's uh, President Bernie Sugru, uh, who seems pretty unconvinced. He said that he thought the amount of bread a woman would need to eat for it to, be, for it to make a difference was unviable. What would you say to that? Mm, well, one, I don't think we probably need to be asking bakers about the science behind it. Um, but actually, it's really not um, what a population program is about. So where that idea comes from is that women, if they're planning to become pregnant, are advised to take a, quite a high dose of folic acid supplement. So I think they've probably worked out, well, you need to eat eight or more slices of bread a day to be getting the amount that you'd get in a folic acid supplement. But actually, what we know is that the whole point of a folic acid fortification program is that it delivers a small or a moderate amount of folic acid to everyone. And actually, um, if you just think about it in a common sense way, you know, it's not as if eating uh, seven slices of bread is going to do nothing and eating eight is magically going to protect you. So, you know, it's a gradient. So right. women who start off with, with low amounts of, of folate intake or folic acid intake, even just a small or moderate amount you know, that they're getting through this fortification program will really reduce their risk. Yeah, interesting. Born with a neural tube defect, yeah. Ah, yeah, understood, Catherine. Okay, stay there and let, we'll get a response um, from our panellists and come back to you, Victoria. Um, well, I've got a question for Dr. Bradbury, yeah. really, since obviously there's only a subset of the population who are women who are looking to get um, pregnant. So are there other health benefits from having a folic acid supplement? Yeah, so, I mean, it is only targeted to women um, that could have become pregnant, but the issue is, is that they really need to be taking it so early on in pregnancy. So, you know, about three weeks after conception, it needs to be before pregnancy and up until about three weeks after conception. That's when the protective period is. So that's why we need to do it in a fortification program because it's often before people know they're pregnant. Ah, right. In terms of, yeah, that's why it needs to be done to everyone. In terms of does it provide any other benefits, I mean, that's the main benefit and that's the reason for the fortification program. There has been some trials um, done in China, which actually large trials, which have seemed to show that actually uh, it may reduce stroke, uh, risk of stroke as well. Um Possibly. So that's a possible benefit uh, for other parts of the population. So on. Yeah, Dr. Bradbury, what were the reasons that New Zealand elected not to actually embark on this all those years ago and how are they mitigated? And, you know, um, was it, for example, one of those arguments where people didn't like anything added to essential kind of food supplies or water supplies? You know where I'm going with that? What, what yeah. was the outcome of that debate? I think it was a mix of things. I think that was part of it, that uh, we sort of don't want any, you know, sort of unadulterated food supply, you know, just a natural food supply that was um, part of it. But it's funny because we've had, say, iodine um, fortification, you know, in terms of into salt and, uh, for, for decades, and that's very well accepted. There was some genuine concern um, 
about whether it may increase the risk of cancer, but there has been trials, again, that have been done and have not shown a significant uh, effect of folic acid on, on cancer risk. And there's over 70 countries, and I think over 80 countries now have mandatory fortification of a food staple with folic mm. acid, and they've shown really, you know, reductions in neural tube defects like spina bifida, and, you know, we haven't seen any health risks that we're concerned about. Nice to have you on. Uh, so a pretty uh, auspicious day regarding uh, this development. Dr. Bradbury, thank you. Uh, Catherine's from the University of Auckland's Department of Epidemiology and Biostats. So uh, as of today, um, uh, adding folic to the non-organic wheat flour uh, in most New Zealand-made breads. Uh, finally on the panel, by the way, if you didn't catch that poll, I'll just say it again. Uh, for those who did not catch it, do you support GST of fruit and veggies? Yes or no? Uh, 69% of panel listeners said no to removing GST from fruit and veggies. 39, 31% voted yes. But to this, green roofs or living roofs are becoming more and more common across Aotearoa. Not only do they add a spark colour to an otherwise mundane rooftop, but green roofs also have an array of environmental benefits. So to facilitate their growing popularity, the University of Auckland is undertaking this project to turn the roof of their Faculty of Engineering building Green, as in collaboration with the Auckland Council. With us is Faculty of Engineering Associate Professor Dr. Asad Shamsuddin. Uh, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you very much for hosting me. It's a pleasure. You know, we like roofs on the panel because about um, two months ago we talked about white roofs uh, in response to uh, climate change, you know, how they reflect uh, the solar rays. Now to green roofs, uh, what are the benefits? Yes, uh, green roof has uh, multiple benefits. First of all, they can be used for managing storm runoff, and they could also improve air quality and also provide a natural habitat for wild wildlife. And also, they because they are green, they could provide shading and therefore will have help to lower uh, the temperature in buildings and also in the surrounding area if they are big enough. And it's a big issue, isn't it, Victoria? Because they're talking about this so-called concept of, or so-called spongy cities where there is an ability for not just uh, roads and streets but also infrastructure, Victoria, to kind of soak in uh, the water as it comes. Yes. Uh, yeah, so f- or Victoria, or, uh, Victoria has, a re- has a question or a response to side, and we'll come back to you. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating one. And when you watch um, shows like Grand Designs in the UK, every single house in this in in the series will seem to put a bit of a green roof in. So it's obviously being well adopted in other countries. And you even go to Central Sydney, there are buildings that have green um, facades where there are plants growing right. up the outside of the the building. Um, I do have a really really basic question is about the weight of it that it adds to the building and now I live in in Wellington in the capital where we have earthquakes all the time and and everyone gets rid of their concrete tile roofs because of that phenomenal weight that you've got on your house and do green roofs add a lot of weight to the building? Well some of those green roofs could can be very lightweight it consists of very thin material. Of course, you know, if you want to install a green roof on an existing house, you have to uh, ensure that it's 
uh, what they call it, the building can stand that the weight of the green roof. So again, but some of those green roofs are very lightweight. Yes, Salwin. Yes, so Professor Evan, can you uh, take us, if you see a vision of what is the utopia in this type of thing, what would that look like for us? I think uh, at, at the end of the day, you know, at the moment, you know, we are experiencing um, climate change, we are experiencing increasing the frequency of occurrence of flood, and then we have to do something. And one of the ways, you know, to manage or to adapt for the impact of climate change is through the sponge cities. And green roof is a component of uh, those uh, sponge cities. So we would expect uh, the city will be greener in the future if we really want to uh, adapt for climate change. And there's an aspect too. I've got to say, Assad, of the uh, of the look. It looks really pretty. It looks really cool, doesn't it? I think Victoria mentioned, you know, going to Sydney and seeing some of those uh, buildings uh, highlighted in green. It, it, it's a it's it's quite a look for a, an urban design, is it not? Yes, it, it's of course. You know, it's like when you have green, green wall or green roof. It's very nice to look at. But what we are trying to do here is to facilitate the uptake of uh, green roof by by users and industry. So what we are trying to come up here is we're trying to come up with design guidelines so that is people who are actually wanted to design the roof, they could uh, follow these design gui- guidelines and successfully implement and install this green roof. Or yeah, very nice to have you on the program. That's uh, Dr. Asad Shamsuddin, Faculty of Engineering uh, Associate Professor. I'll, I'll, I'll keep in touch with the uh, the green roof, see how it's going on. Might go and have a look. And, uh, uh, I was going to say, do you think they'll open it up to the public to go and have a look? Yeah, exactly. I might go in there and um, <laughs> plant a couple of agapanthers. Um, that'll, <laughs> that'll keep it green, eh? <laughs> keep you busy in the years to come. <laughs> Oh dear, I can see the headlines now, uh, uh, broadcast of sneaks and agapanthers as a practical joke. That wouldn't be very see the good. the council's reaction to that. That wouldn't be very good, would it? Get a call Empty from the your boss. pockets, Wallace. What kind of seeds have you got in here? <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, uh, we've got about 30 seconds. Left. I want to hear more, because I'm going to come back to this. I want to hear more about your solar power costs, Victoria. So it does put a dent in the wallet? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because Good. if you think about it, when the sun is shining, you're generating. So you use your appliances while you're generating. It's a real mindset difference. You don't put your washing machine on at night when it's low power cost. You put it on when the sun is out. And we we even use the dryer, which we never used before we had solar, um, because there's absolutely no electricity cost for running the dryer. Amazing. So in terms of percentage, you're, what, is it, is it half the bill? Is it a quarter of the bill that you used to pay? What is it? It's less than a quarter of the bill that we used what? to pay. But that does include the offset of what we sell back into the grid, so our excess. So we don't have a battery bank like other people do. Um, so we sell everything excess that we generate back into the grid. So that includes that offset. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Very good indeed. I'm off to put my agapanthases in the bin on my way out. Uh, I'm back tomorrow for <laughs> Sowen Manning and the Victoria McLennan Cura. You've been great. I'm Wallace Chapman. See you tomorrow, 3.45. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint next.